about what a stone is, a stone is hard. It's dense. It can be immovable. It can be sharp. It can be smooth. But you're not going to be able to bend it. You're not going to be able to shape and mold it. You're not going to be able to wrap your arms around it softly and gently. Grace is the movability of love. Grace is the way that our arms reach out to one another in this soft, loving way that evolves and it changes and it becomes this living, breathing, faithful entity. If we don't leave space for that with one another as loving human beings, then we are no better than a stone. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 107, The Hinge Moment, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Reverend Shannon Fleck, Executive Director of the Oklahoma Conference of Churches. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Take a good look around you at the people in your community the leaders, the ministers, the people in the positions of authority or power, and pay attention to what you see. Do they look like you, think like you, and generally believe the same things you believe? On reflection, and if I'm being really honest about it, that's what I've experienced most of my life. For the most part, I could easily fit in anywhere, especially if I kept my mouth shut and my thoughts to myself. As long as I behaved and didn't push the boundaries of the status quo, then the unseen hand was generally welcoming. When we're not personally running into boundaries, it's easy to think that everything is all right in the world for everyone, especially when our focus is dialed in on our own needs. What about everyone else outside that narrow tunnel, the people in our communities that don't see themselves represented in the positions of power or authority, those who can't easily slide on the rails of the system by simply playing along? For whatever the reason, religion, race, financial status, sexuality, we have human brothers and sisters that aren't invited to the table of privilege. Further, many in privileged positions have been curating the systems to keep it that way by perpetuating outdated secular norms. This is the precise territory that Reverend Shannon Fleck operates, and it's why I asked her to visit with me on Find the Good News. Reverend Fleck is the executive director of the Oklahoma Conference of Churches, a coalition of faith communities, Christian denominations, nations, interfaith organizations, and secular nonprofits that work to connect society to faith-based communities. This mission and this conversation is personal for Shannon. She holds, as I do, that people are informed by what they see, and when they do not see themselves properly represented, they're actually being held back from the fullness of humanity, effectively stunning their growth into their full potential, neutering communities from the enrichment that diversity and variety brings. Reverend Fleck is a Christian faith leader that is publicly addressing the very real and present issues that many churches are not addressing. While she isn't a fan of the particularly partisan marriage of religion and politics, she does lean her Christian faith directly into restorative justice, as well as the avoidance of umbrella terms that simply placate and maintain old social norms. Shannon wraps her arms around a grace that is inviting, a grace of inclusion, and refuses to sacrifice people against a threshing stone of theology. Reverend Shannon Fleck and the coalition she represents are very concerned with how to represent people, ensuring that they can see themselves sitting at the table. Now, it's time to check our privilege, get informed, 
consider some personal actions and changes, then tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning, you're dreaming of the story I can hear. The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep. On the path to your deliverance in a holy ball of light. Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. Man, I've had a really good day. I've, I had a, another incredibly good conversation this morning for the show. So I'm, I'm looking forward. To, I actually just told them, I said, I'm very curious to see um, how what we talked about influences or informs this conversation. Uh, he's, okay. a Method, he's a Methodist minister in our community, and he's really doing some, uh, I think, good works just by having conversations that people aren't having. And uh, mm-hmm. being willing to step out a little bit outside the box, and so super necessary Great. where we're at, especially maybe just everywhere right now, it's necessary. So, absolutely. Thanks for taking absolutely. the time. I I've been kind of, I guess, cyber following you uh, and, and the work <laughs> you've been doing, and just I don't know, it just it hit me last year. I saw all the the ways you guys are stepping out and being on the front line. And I said, you know, I really want to talk to her and like where, what drives this and especially being a Christian voice right now. I mean, we need that so desperately. I think a different voice that's not just squeaky wheels and, and clattering symbols, you know, because that's getting all the attention. That's right. Exactly I mean, right. That's what that's what attacks the capital. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. I'm I I have a whole laundry list of questions, you know, that I want to kind of get through just to kind of frame out for the folks listening. Uh, so first of all, I always ask people if they could just give my listeners a little overview of who I'm talking to. That way, I don't mispronounce something or uh, <laughs> get off into some weeds really too early <laughs> in the conversation. Well, who's to say I won't get off in the weeds just doing that? You know, that's that's very possible. Always it happens um, on this show all the time. That's and it's I think that's the nature of our this show. Good, good. Well, I am the Reverend Shannon Fleck. I'm the executive director of the Oklahoma Conference of Churches, which is a coalition of faith communities the best way to describe it. It's made up of different Christian denominations, different Christian churches, as well as interfaith organizations. Oh, really? And 
and secular nonprofits. Really? I didn't so, realize that. Okay. Yes, we we are a, a bigger conglomerate than our name would suggest. And okay. and a lot of our membership what they're doing is they're signing on to this uh, mission, this this work that's that's happening in the state in the name of faith. It doesn't matter what faith you are, you don't have to be a faith-based organization. We is if you're on board, we want you. I got you. And so that mission is, so for the folks that don't know what the mission is, what is it? Yes. Our, well, our official mission statement that you will see on our website is to connect, motivate, and empower communities of faith across the state of Oklahoma. And we do that by essentially being the, the middle piece between faith communities and secular society, and then also connecting secular society to faith communities, because especially in a state like Oklahoma, faith communities are a commodity. They are a sector. They are, they are a, whole, a whole range of things. And so we try and organize that sector as best we can, keep people informed about what they need to know in our state, and keep them connected to one another across whatever lines might divide us. Okay, that's actually what my mind was gravitating towards, what you just said about whatever lines might divide us. That's really, to me, seems like that would be one of the biggest challenges, right, is when you hit those things. I mean, we all do really well when we're talking about things that we agree upon, but when we get into those uh, crossover territories where there are lines of differences, uh, navigating that seems like it would be challenging, especially with a big coalition. Incredibly, yes. It's and a lot of it I have found um, has has just been knowing when that line needs to move, uh, right? Because yeah. sometimes we do bump up against a line, and we need to be respectful of that line in order to maintain our table. Um, but there are times when the line has to move in order to bend the arc toward yeah. justice. And uh, that is a part of the work too. So it's very, there's a lot of discernment. There's a lot of intentionality. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I was wondering about. I, I stumbled upon when I was researching for our conversation, I came across an article and I was like, huh, this is interesting. I wasn't aware of this, but I read where y'all had put a statement out against racism and discrimination of any kind and which I was like, okay, I'm all on board. And then when I read further in the article, the article is actually about one of the coalition members leaving the coalition over this. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting. I was like, wow, how could it shocked me? Well, it shocked me and then it didn't shock me, but I was very curious to learn more about that, that whole process, you know, of getting folks on board to make a statement like this and then to um, run into a line, I guess, that's not movable. You know, is that really kind of yep. what happened? Yep, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. And I mean, that the statement you're referencing is our brand new theological statement on race and anti-discrimination. And that work took, I mean, that took me two years to get that to, to where it was. Um, that's grueling work. That's work that the public doesn't see. You know, it's, it's like the, the tip of the iceberg and everything underneath that iceberg that you don't see. Um, 
I knew going into the release of that statement that we were going to lose that denomination. Um, you did? I mean, like even early I on? Did. Yeah. Yeah. I knew. Um, and, and the crossroads came for me because I wasn't willing to say anti-discrimination and leave anybody out. Gotcha. No one was getting left out of that. Yeah, because if you use so, an umbrella term, you can then say, well, we didn't really mean these people. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I wasn't willing to do that. So I knew that that was, that was one of those moments when it was going to be, you know, we got to, we got to move the line towards, towards justice. And, and this is the prophetic voice we need to be as an organization right now. And if that means the loss of, of you as a, as a denomination, then that's what that's going to have to mean. Wow. That takes courage, I think, because, you know, to the idea that we have to reach across and, and as you said, you know, maybe bend to move the lines a little bit to take care of everybody at the table. There, I guess, are places where you say, OK, at, cer- at a certain point, we've got to make a, a stand on something. I, in fact, this is what I told you. I knew the last conversation was going to inform this conversation. And we were talking about that, that. Uh, setting rules for yourself, whatever religion you're in or whatever community you're in, you have to almost set some rules for yourself because you can run into situations where you find that doctrine, for instance, may be hurting people. And you have to have a rule that says, okay, we're not going to hurt human beings. We Even if this may be a, a theological doctrine, when we hit these things, they're razor sharp and people are bleeding all over this. So we got to do something about this. Yep. 100%. 100%. And doctrine cannot be set in stone. If it is, then we leave no room for grace. We leave no room for the movement of humanity. Um, so the, so the ideology that, that these doctrinal issues have to be manifest in stone is dangerous in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree that I would love to pause right there. There may be people listening to our conversation. I have a, an audience that's all over the place. The word grace could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I would love to just for a moment pause there and get you to talk about that. Like when you say that, comparing grace to a stone, the stone of theology or doctrine, What's the, what, what would you say the difference is between those two things for someone that doesn't really know what is even meant by grace? Sure. Um, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I think it's a great question. I love it. Um, in comparison to a stone, think about what a stone is. A stone is is hard. It's dense. It can be immovable. It can be sharp. It can be smooth, but you're not going to be able to bend it. You're not going to be able to shape and mold it. You're not going to be able to wrap your arms around it softly and gently. Okay. Grace is the movability of love. Mm. Grace is the way that our arms reach out to one another 
in this soft, loving way that evolves and it changes and it becomes this living, breathing, faithful entity. And if we don't leave space for that with one another as human beings, as loving human beings, then we are no better than a stone. I love every word of that. Do you know this is the strangest visualization? As I was listening to you, I know this is so strange, gosh, but I kept imagining my bed with my wife in our bedroom and how there is a little pillow in our bed that's for my son in case he wants to come sleep with us at night. And that is like the visual I get when I'm listening to you talk about grace. Grace makes room. Grace anticipates that you may want to be comforted. Grace is going to adjust in the middle of the night so you can rest between, you know, two loving bodies that love you. That's a beautiful image. I mean, hearing you say that, that the arms reaching around, I've never thought of it that way before. Me either. Until you ask that question, right? And that's the beauty of human engagement and dialogue is that we're able to ask questions and then you can, I now have the opportunity to think of grace with that language. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm getting a little, getting that feeling. (laughs) Good. I love that feeling. (laughs) Me too. I got to tell you, I have a little, I have a little candle I keep burning for these conversations. I'll show it to you. And in my last conversation, I talked. We, we talked about this uh, something Thomas Merton said about when two people are together in Christ, there's always a third present, you know. And uh, that candle, I've always lit it. I keep it off screen. I've never shown it to anybody, and that's always there to represent that third. And talking like this, I can feel that third, you know, that that bind, that binder. Yes, that's that's yes. the beauty. And I too. I too am a big fan of candles and and the symbol of candles and the burning of the flame. And um, so I love that you showed that to me. I I connect with that very well. Oh, well, that's great. I'm glad I did. I wasn't gonna, but I was thinking about it when you, when you were talking, I was like, Oh, this, I love that feeling. Uh, That's what I think about uh, communication. And I mean, you use communication in your work all the time. I mean, obviously that's how I found you. And, you know, we were coming out of a four-year cycle. I mean, today we have a new president. That's great. It's a historic day. Hallelujah. Um, mm-hmm. You've used communication, and then our president has used communication. And I think about that often. I think about the value of what we're doing right now, the technology, and how we can point these things towards goodness, mercy, justice, love, compassion, connection, all, all the whole laundry list of good things. But then we also are living in a time where we can see like very clearly what happens when you point those tools towards uh, negative things. And uh, I wonder just for a moment if we could reflect on that in your work, how how often do you really do you sit and think, hey, I'm going to communicate, but I'm going to point this communication towards the service of good. Like, is that conscious in your efforts all the time? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Um, and it's terrifying, um, the, the power of communication in, in it's terrifying. And certainly the acts we've seen in Washington, DC, 
um, at the start of January are indicative of just how terrifying communication can become. I, I didn't used to be as, I don't want to say calculated, but I do say intentional a lot. Mm. I, I try to be as intentional as possible. Now that's not to say that I often say things kindly or softly because a lot of times I say things very pointedly. Okay. And it's not in the spirit of anything mean, wrong. That's just the era of social media. But it's also the era of speaking confidently about what is unjust. And I think especially right now, as you have said, faith leaders have to step out of the space of safety and neutrality and step into a space of confident rebuking. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I, I live on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. And so we don't have a lot of faith leaders who are willing to step out like that. Um, mostly it's in some way of twisting and bending and morphing to actually support those actions somehow that we've seen taking place in our country. And I remember on January 7th, the weekend after that, that Sunday morning, I, I woke up and I didn't say it out loud to anybody in my circle of influence. But I remember thinking, if if you're going to church this morning and your pastor isn't talking about this uh, firmly, then you might either want to say something or consider that you might not be in a community that's actually working for the betterment of humankind in this country. And I know that seems harsh, but it's it sh sharp, but that's really what I thought. I thought, you know, this is what we need right now. This is the, uh, where you, you've something you've a language of reformative justice, I believe was something that you're an advocate of or work with. Oh. And, and I thought, yes. you know, that language kind of works in in that regard. You know, we need to have some kind of a restorative justice. Restorative, I, yeah. Yeah. We need to have pastors that are willing to restore uh, our humanity. We're, we're aching right now. Our our, uh, our compassion, our willingness to see each other uh, in brotherhood and, and willing to call things out that hurt other people. I mean, just very simple. It seems so simple. But why is it so complex? Mm. Well, and you know, I do not serve a local church in my capacity. And when that Sunday rolled around, or that Friday for for our interfaith family, um, I mean, I did not envy that position. Yeah, I am. I I'm lucky because I am not accountable to a congregation of people who pay my salary. Right. And that's I, something. I am accountable to a board of directors. So there, there are things, and I am very cognizant of this. There are things that I can get away with. Yeah. There are things that I can say that my colleagues in the local church might not be able to get to yet. Um, because imagine that dynamic, having to stand in front of the very body of people that pay you. Right. And so if what you say, if they're not willing to go there with you, 
you're going to be punished in very real life ways. And that's, that is a dynamic that is incredibly challenging for a local church pastor. I, I've been a local church pastor. I know what that dynamic is. I know that pressure. It's so hard. And I know that Sunday was gut-wrenching for for my colleagues. I know it was. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine either. I mean, just even being uh on social media and having a circle there, I mean, you're going to get different uh hot takes on that. You know, if you say anything, I mean, things are just so wild out there. It's the wild west. And as far as communication goes, yeah, I, I, I had that kind of experience or I saw it kind of on display a couple of years ago at, at a local parish that I used to be a part of. And it was right after one of the big uh, exposés or the Catholic Church sex scandal. You know, it was like one new report had come out for, for these decades old atrocities. And it was all over the news. It really had kind of taken over the news airwaves a couple of years ago and we were at a, a meeting one night and it had just come out and it was that that saturday and we had a meeting that sunday and the pastor of the church he came out and he was trying to address it but the whoever was in head of that organization that had put that meeting on i mean every time he tried to address it he was trying to actually what i actually believe he was trying to say the right thing he kept trying to just navigate it at least. And they just kept shutting him down. Like, okay, we need to move on. We need to move on. And that was the last time I ever set foot in there because I saw it had happened before with some other things. I said, you know, they're never going to let him, they're never going to take the leash off. He's never going to actually really be able to get into any of this territory. And that stuff is what's going on in the world. So if I can't come and get access to wisdom or teachings that are addressing the very real and present things, that are going on in our lives, then what, what am I really getting? Just some watered down, you know, life as usual fiction, you know, that that's and what you just articulated is the perfect description of why formal religion is dying. What you have just articulated is the very reason why we have more people not attending formal worship services now more than ever. And how do you, what has, what changes? I mean, how do you, I mean, I know putting those messages out there is part of that, but how do you, uh, yeah, it sounds like a rupturing. I mean, it really does. I mean, I've, I've heard those, read those Pew reports and yeah, I see the same thing happening. I don't even know what the answer is though. I mean, it's going to take some time to get, because the next generation, I mean, like my son, for instance, he he's gay. And, you know, in, in where we live, he's like, I have no interest in being uh, fitting my morphing myself to fit in. I don't have a place at the table, even if he finds wisdom in some of the teachings and life uh, information that he can utilize on day to day. He's looking around at the world and going, am I represented uh, is there justice for me and my people? Um, you know, the list goes on. I mean, from there on down or anybody within his earshot. I mean, he tends to befriend afflicted people, people that uh, are on the fringes or people who have been uh, shunned or bullied. So that's his sort of circle. Right. And he's going, well, where do my friends fit into this dynamic? That's his community. So if my community isn't at home in my faith community, do I have a faith community? It's just an interesting thing. 
Well, and I think the church is behind the curve in changes it needs to make because you know, in the 1950s and 60s, what what I think of as the glory days for Christianity in the United States, all you had to do was open the front door to a church and people would come to you. Faith communities were the center of American life. You know, that was where your social activities right. were. That was where you went as a family. You went to the church. But slowly, life in America has shifted and it's changed. And that's no longer the case. You know, our, our lives of Americans, our lives as Americans have shifted and, and our attentions are needed elsewhere and we're drowning in work and busyness and we have to have, and we have to go to the soccer matches and the dance recitals and, <laughs> right. and the, and all the things and the faith community is probably about 20 years behind and I have no basis for this. This is just my ramblings and my observations. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I am not the Pew Research Center. Um, but I feel like the church is definitely about 20 years behind in in these community-based changes that it needs to be making because the America it's still trying to serve doesn't exist anymore. Mm. It's interesting because the, hearing you say that, it makes me think that the churches have are changing, but not in, in a way that perhaps, and I say that, again, I make a general statement here. That's not all churches, but what I see, at least where I live, is that they they are changing, but they're changing to serve a more rabid, devoted following to the to the tribe than trying to serve the broader community at large. That may be wrong. I might not. And again, I couldn't apply that to everybody, but just that's what I sense. I'll give you an example of something that happened a couple many years ago. I say many years ago. I mean, it was right when uh, Donald Trump had been elected. I was going to volunteer at a youth group at a, at a local church. And, you know, they'd put me with a young man. He was, I don't know, 20 years old, and he was in charge of the youth group. And he said, uh, I said, yeah, we want you to work with him. You know, we need like an older presence in there to kind of help. Um, he's excited. He's got the energy. I said, okay, well, I'm down with it, you know. And so I went in to the first meeting that night. Well, none of the youth were there, and I was trying to get to know the fella. And he said, the, I mean, it was right after the election, and it came up, and he said, well, you know, We've just had some. It's, it's nice to have a change because we've all been through the ringer these last eight years with the last president. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. He's twenty, so if you were to take eight years out of that, he would have been twelve when Barack Obama had been president. And I'm like, what could you have possibly, you yourself, person, young man, faith leader now, and you're about to lead the youth of the next generation? and influence them, what could you have possibly been through? But what I realized when I decided to not stay within that group, I, I realized that he's being influenced by people above him. And so this is getting passed on within the churches, you yes. know, this rhetoric, and it's getting fused into the mind of the young people that somehow their religion is entangled with politics, like to this degree, and not to say that we don't have a place in politics, but I don't know. It was really disturbing entanglement. I was seeing in that. I was like, well, so this came from somewhere. He didn't just make this up out of nowhere. This is something that's been placed in him that he now is indoctrinated in 
fused it with his faith, and now groups of children, young people are coming through here, the potential to hear the same rhetoric. Where in the world is faith involved in this? Like, where does, I don't know. I don't even know. I kind of rambled there for a second, but it was something that I felt like that churches are going to need to address at some point mm-hmm. if they're going to save membership. I mean, yeah. The the whole Christian nationalism issue is also killing Christianity. Um, and we've seen that very plainly in the last four years. But that has been a very, um, that has been cultivated over many decades. This, this linking of especially evangelical Christianity with um, political stances, this, this marriage of sorts that never should have happened. You know, when, when we look at the scriptures and we see this conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, like there at the end, Jesus is saying to him, no, what I'm about is above whatever this mess is y'all are trying to do here. Yeah. Whatever this Rome thing is, you do you, but the work I'm doing is up here. Right. It's on another level than what you're trying to do. And that was a part of the fury against Jesus. Like, how dare you? That's what that that is what is so blasphemous and terrifying about a whole religion, at least a, a sect of it, being married to such a narrow human partisan viewpoint because what Jesus was about existed at such a higher level. So I'm consistently saying, and I will say it probably, you know, till my last breath, that of course the church should be political, but the church should not be partisan. Mm. And there is a distinct, real, and emphatic difference. Political are issues like equality and issues like justice and uplifting the poor. If you or any listener thinks that Jesus was not a fully political being, I would invite you to reread. I would invite you to reread everything because everything he was doing was for the lost, the least, and the last. Every single thing. And that is political. And it's still political today. Even in our very narrow political culture here in the United States, and I say narrow because the ministry of Jesus exists above that. We cannot say Jesus is for this political candidate or this political candidate, but we can say Jesus is for healthcare and people being taken care of. We can say Jesus is for uplifting the poor, not putting children in cages. Maybe not putting people in prison, you know, like these, these issues are political issues, but they are not Republican Democrat issues. They're gospel issues. Longtime Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. 
On the Don Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings, enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts? Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Don Deacon Podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. I hope you'll join me at the Don Deacon Podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search The Don Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about this this morning, what you just said about not being uh, partisan. You know, I was reading, uh, I always like to read what, what the clergy and different faiths are saying, you know, and the prayers they're putting out uh, for a candidate, you know. And this morning I was up early reading some of those, and I was fascinated by the linguistic jumping jacks some were making to not have to to do their job um, and say a prayer for the new president, but to really not support him. You right. know, and I was like, I was fascinated. I mean, some of these things, I was like, you are working so hard to, it's almost like smiling through your teeth. Like, oh, I'm going to smile, but I'm really super angry. And You're I thought it's so hard not to love somebody. <laughs> right. Look at how hard it is for you to not love somebody. Yeah. You have to do verbal jumping jacks to not love a person because that's not, normal for humanity yeah it's interesting i mean i i know some people i mean i don't like the i don't i didn't like donald trump okay i mean just plain simple language i didn't like the guy didn't like him before he was president didn't like anything he did really as president um but it really had more to do with who he was and the way he handled himself. It really, yes, his policies were garbage a lot of times, but it was a lot of it was just his overall way he touched humanity in general. Yeah. I just didn't appreciate it. I, I does not, you know, when I look for a leader, I, I'm looking for certain characteristics, and he just didn't seem to embody those things. And that's okay. I feel like I would do that in my normal life with anybody else, you know, that if, if there's somebody that's being abrasive, crass, using language that I don't appreciate or that is uh, really degrading someone else, I probably would just say, hey, I'm kind of done with this and I'm not going to have you around the people I care about. I'm just going to get you out of that, whatever position in the family or community you're in. I'm just going to do that. With him, we couldn't really do that. It was like every day waking up to some, I mean, really just new discord. I mean, every day it was something else. And I thought, man, this is exhausting. We're all going to be traumatized after this. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's been traumatizing to, I know, local faith communities, too, where they have, because it seems more members are in support of that. Don't ask me how. I just don't understand it. Um, the ones that aren't that feel obligated to stay in the community, they're further traumatized because there's like a lingering effect. There's still this diminished feeling of I'm not really a part of the community anymore. I mean, I'm in it. I'm going through the motions. It's my church. It's my, you know, we have our rituals and our traditions, but I'm people know what I believe politically. So I'm, I'm kind of mm -hmm. outcast within the group. I don't know. It's strange. 
Well, and it's a very interesting dynamic in Oklahoma um, because, man, we've got some great clergy here. That, yeah, we it seems have, like it. We have, we have some outstanding clergy who really have navigated the last four years with a grace and abundance that that has been remarkable. And, um, you know, one in particular, a dear friend of mine posts a week, her weekly prayer yeah. that she preaches in her church, but she posts it on her Facebook page every week. And my God, if, if that, those prayers have become like manna yeah. for, for this time, because she is on, she is in a very unique church that uplifts her ability to speak bluntly, um, which not everybody has, but she has it and she does it. And the way that she approached this president, um, I didn't, I very carefully did not say leader. Mm. Mm. The way she approached this president was to always pray for change of heart, to always pray for bravery to do the right thing, but not cutting him any slack for the hurt, pain, and anti-biblical things that were happening in our country. However, there was always a notion of, we pray that you're going to, you know, we pray for you to change. Yeah. Yeah. And and if and she was genuine in that. That was genuine words. I know her so well. She's so genuine. To think now that in reverse there are faith leaders who cannot say the same thing for the new president of our country is really hard yeah. because we should always be praying for the well-being of humanity. Right. Especially those people that are in that position to influence great numbers of people. I mean, globally, you know, that's it's true. I have this little book I keep in my pocket and it's it's a litany of names. And once a week I sit down and and these names go back for years, you know, and some of the people I I even have to have trouble remembering who they were or write their wrote their name down. I trust that God knows because I sometimes can't remember. But I'll sit with those names and Donald Trump's name is in there, you know, and so are. You know, like Kim Jong-un and other people around the world who have the same power. And it's the same thing. I say their name hoping that I can get my, for one, get my heart in the right place because I don't like feeling that um, discord. But yeah. also that for a change of hearts, heart and, hearts and minds on some of those people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I Joe Biden's name is now in that book. And. Mm-hmm. If I live long enough, so will the next president. I just guess mm-hmm. I don't understand why we can't. Yeah, what is it with the faith leaders that they can't turn that backwards? That's a good way to put it, because I'm seeing that this morning with a lot of folks. I was really disheartened. I thought maybe it would be just some good opportunity for some people to put that behind us, but uh, it seems like there's going to be some folks hanging on to that. I, I do hope to see some changes in our community uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. I have a question. I, I mean, I'm, I'm always – I couldn't – in my little cyber research I did on you, uh, I was like, man, I I would, I couldn't find answers to some questions. And so one was, I just, I call this the lightning strike moment because some people have had this. And, uh, 
I would love to know if you did. Was there a moment in your life, like a lightning strike moment, whether it was in childhood or, or maybe adolescence where you just went, oh my gosh, I know what I'm going to do. Like, like an awakening moment that just changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had, I had one of those moments, but what's sad and I'll tell you why it's sad is that I didn't realize it was that in oh, the wow. moment. Wow. Um, I was, um, I was either like eighth or ninth grade and I was on a mission trip in St. Louis, Missouri with my youth group. And God, I remember it vividly. We were, we had finished worship for the evening and I was laying outside on the grass in this lawn of this church we were staying in just silence, just by myself laying in the grass and no one else was out there. And a friend of mine came and laid beside me and asked if I was okay. And I just kind of looked at her and said, I think I'm supposed to be a minister really i remember it crystal clearly why it's sad is that i had that realization at such a young age but i didn't remember it until years later huh. because i had never seen a female minister in my whole life wow wow so the possibility yeah. at your young in your young mind you had that flash but you probably thought, well, I don't, I'm not informed by the world. I'm not seeing this. So this must just be me make, you know? Yeah. Yep. Wow. I was like, I, that's very bizarre. Huh. It wasn't until I was in college that I saw a female minister for the first time. And it turned out that that very female minister is the one who encouraged me to consider seminary. Really? Yeah. Isn't that something? So that that's so important what you're saying right there, that yeah. children are looking around the world for that type of information that's really unsaid. They're looking for affirmations that they, too, can be, you know, whatever yep. it may be. Yep. It's and so no important. And no one ever told me, of course, at that moment, I had only told my friend who came and sat next to me. But no one ever said you can't at that right. point in my life. Now, today, I get told every day I can't. But really? that's a different story. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but at that age, it was pure visualization that I had just never seen it. And therefore, that couldn't be possible. Because I had never seen it. I had never verbalized that to my parents. I had never verbalized it out loud to anybody. Um, it was just what the world had shown me was yeah. possible and what wasn't. How old were you, you said? Eighth or ninth grade. I was okay. 13, 13 or 14. That's so fascinating. I, I often say this. I have some really vivid, good memories, but really vivid, painful memories, too, uh, from when I was a child. And... I look at them often. I mean, you know, they inform your life, right? And I always tell people this. You don't know what a child is honing in on. There are things that when I tell people, they're, 
even, especially people who were in the same room when certain things would happen, I would go, I'll tell them the story from my perspective. And they're like, I didn't see that or I didn't hear that. I said, well, that's because your children are perceiving completely different. We're picking, they were picking up things differently. And hearing you say that, I mean, I just love that story. I love that you're able to look back on that moment too. Like you, you were able to like draw your arm back through time and touch it and go, Oh, I remember I tied a knot. They call somebody a while back said they're hinge moments. Like this is where life put a hinge in a door uh, Mm. and the door doesn't open till later. You know, Mm. Ooh, who said that? I love Believe that. it or not, it was Theo Vaughn, the comedian. He was talking about his childhood. Well, I love that. I love I it love too. That. It's like this is a hinge moment where I, I, I something's happening, but I, I won't really be able. That door's not going to open until later in my life. But the thing, the pin was put in right here. Yes. Oh man, I'm going to use that. Yeah, please do. I Absolutely. love that. I mean, I, I, that's what that sounds like. It was for you, and then meeting, you know, this minister later. It's like, ah, oh, you know, it just swings wide now. It's like, that's, that's interesting. Something I want to go back to, um, not, this is called find the good news, but I do think sometimes talking about these things gets into territory that's useful for people. You were saying that you've met some folks that, uh, don't think you can be a female minister. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. That's, is that pretty for common? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's very common. Um, and there are still several, you know, Christian faith traditions that do not believe in ordaining women. And, um, that is a part of their belief system. I happen to believe that that is incorrect. Has it ever affected your ability to get something done? Like when you have to work with someone who maybe comes from a tradition that just says, Hey, I'm not going to work with a female minister. Does ever, have you ever encountered that? Yes. Really? God. Oh yeah. See, that, that's shocking to me. Not that I don't believe it. I do 100%. I just can't. <laughs> I'm not that way, so I can't, like, get there. I don't, I go, where do we, what kind of thing do you have to twist in yourself to, like, get there to believe something like that? Well, they're, they're taught that. They're taught that emphatically. You know, hmm. just like you were saying, your, your young 20-year-old gentleman hmm. had been taught. Yeah, true. You know, growing up, it's the same. Yeah, it's the same. You know, quick story: the denomination that left over the race and discrimination statement was not the first to leave. Um, the first to leave was three months after I was named executive director. Oh, and that was the catalyst because you were you're female. That was not what they said publicly, but three months into the job, I didn't have time to do much of anything to change anything. So, wow, that is so interesting. I, I don't yeah. know, it just fascinates me. I mean, discriminations are just so varied and subtle and, um, God, just manifold. I mean, they arise in so many forms. Well, and it's also indicative, too. Um, I love how you are able to admit I can't wrap my brain around that. Well, you are a white straight man, right? No, you're, you're right. At the, you're That's at exactly the apex right. of privilege, and this is my point that I make to white people because we do a lot of work around white privilege. Is that when you have privilege, it's invisible, right? And it isn't until it is alerted to you or you take the active stance to seek out knowledge and education that you see it. 
So white we, people can just be ignorant their whole lives to white privilege. And that in and of itself is a privilege. It's so true. We were talking about this at the dinner table last night, my wife and, and our kids. And we were talking about how we were, I'd read the book cast this year on recommendation from someone else. And it was talking about how white and we don't even realize we're thinking it and it's not conscious, but it's like, Oh, I'm white and white is the norm. And then any other color skin is not the norm. Like we don't verbalize it that way and you don't even know that it's there, but when you really analyze it, it's really there that under the surface that, Oh, whiteness is the normal and everything else is sort of this aberration or, or should be white. Uh, or should aspire to be yeah. as white as possible. And it's yeah. not that you're sitting around with some manifesto, like going, yes, this is true, but it's like it's in there because we haven't it's been taught anything different. I mean, our society, as you were informed as a child, you know, mm-hmm. you see what gets in, what you see in the world's informing you. Yeah, that's what we've been informed by for generations, you know, now. And, uh, you know, oh, sorry. No, 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 that was <laughs> it. I mean, that's the end. I put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> It might be a hinge. Um, you know, one of one of my favorite questions that is asked during our white privilege trainings of white people is, at what age did you become aware of your race? Right. Right. Let me tell you a story. A real short one. But I had this conversation with uh, Simran Jeet Sin on the podcast and I told him, I said, you know, it's a sad thing that something so simple had was extraordinary. But when on my senior trip in high school, all my friends were white. We had one friend who was black. And so we all went. It was like seven or eight guys. And we camped for three days. We canoed and camped. And uh, we were just sharing things, you know, canteens, meals and everything. And one evening we were sitting on the canoes and, and one of my buddies came and sat by me and he said, Man, he said, I don't know why this is on my mind. He said, but did you drink, uh, I'm not going to say my friend's name. I'll just call him Lou. Did you, uh, did you notice that we were all drinking out of the same canteen with Lou, our black friend, right? And I said, I didn't think about it. And he said, I did. And he said, and I've been thinking about it. He said, have you ever drank out of a container uh, with a shared a container or a glass or anything with a black person before? And he wasn't really trying to, he wasn't being, he was actually literally asking. And I said, you know, and I had to sit and think about it. I went, I don't think so. And he Mm. said, yeah, me either. And that was the whole conversation. But you could tell, and I know this is so sad, but like, it was like, you could tell like this moment between us two Southern white boys, we were Mm. like touching on something there that was like, this ought to not be extraordinary. We but shouldn't it, be doing this for the first time. We right shouldn't now. be doing this, but it is like, isn't that sad? Like mm. it was unsaid between us, but it was like really almost like a kind of melancholy, somber tone. Like it was hitting us that there's this worldview that we've been a part of that we don't really want. I know I'm adding way more context to it, but I mean, yeah, on, on hindsight, it was like, yeah, there's this worldview that we've been a part of and brought up in, and we've just kind of been floating along through it. And this weird moment of just sharing a canteen and calling it out made us realize how much we really haven't been a part of a broader worldview, a broader world, you know. And I think about that moment all the time, how that was the first time I ever thought about 
yeah, like race. Like, oh, he's yes. he. We're white. He's black. There's a. I just never considered it like the way my friend framed it. There, I don't know. It was a pointed and I moment. Bet your friend, your friend Lou, knew his race when he was before he was in pre-K. Right. Right. Because the world forced him to be aware of his race. Right. In a way that the world does not force white people to be aware of their race. Yeah. And as a white person, that was a big moment for me in my journey was when did I realize I was white? Mm. And it's really hard to pinpoint it because the world wraps itself around white people in this very privileged way. And when you ask a person of color that question, they know young. And it's just one of a multitude of ways that that white people, I believe, need to come to realize our privilege if we are truly going to be in the work of anti-racism. White people have to learn about our privilege so that we can be active in dismantling the systems that we have built. Yeah, this is so personal, but look, I got to tell you, like, uh, it's so interesting that we're talking about this. My, uh, my grandson, he, my, my daughter's white and my grandson's dad is black. And when he was born right during the, the went right right before George Floyd was murdered and, you know, the black lives matter, uh, protests were taking place all over the country. And, I will say, like, there, I have family members that just, they were like, they just like, we seem to, so sick of these riots. I'm sick of these protests. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. And I said, well, you got to understand why they're doing it. We were getting in the conversations, and I, I probably didn't navigate it the right way. Honestly, I was really getting a little upset. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my family, I said, I brought it up. I said, look, I said, you got to understand. I said, you're, you've got a relative who's, has the potential to be murdered just like this guy and i'll never forget like one of my relatives said well yeah but he doesn't look black and i was like that's not that's not the point but what i realized in that conversation was how many people i'm around and and that i see who have those same types of justifications it's like well yeah. yeah but i mean you know, as long as you do this or that, you should be good. I'm like, this is not the issue. And I think there are a lot of Americans. I really do think that there are a lot of Americans that don't dig any deeper than that. No. And I, know that I, saw, yeah. I, I, mean, I hate even telling that story because it's just such a true thing. But it, I, I, it really revealed for me that, oh, wow, this is like the the level that most are entering yeah. it. They just don't want to enter it because they've never had to enter it before. You know, like, yeah. You don't have to enter it. That's right. I don't have to see it. I don't have to touch it. It's bad. It's wrong. If there's anything white people are really good at, it's our justification. Yeah. It made me think that, too, because I thought, you know, if I didn't have, a, if my grandson, you know, if I hadn't brought my grandson up in that context, I don't even know that anybody in my family would have really thought about it any any deeper you know if i hadn't have used an actual person in my family you see what i'm saying like it's like yeah. okay maybe maybe by bringing somebody close into the conversation i can stimulate you know mm-hmm. some growth in it but it, that wasn't even enough that was just literally like well you know it'll be okay he he's 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 light-skinned he should be all right 
And I thought, wow, man, this is this is this is what's going on. I mean, this is the level of investment that so many of us um, have. And it's not very much. I mean, it's just like, please. I mean, even the debate over the name Black Lives Matter. Right. Like the way that people go go toe to toe over a statement that is so important and and we as white people can't even go deep enough under why that statement is so powerful we can't even get past that initial layer of what that really is saying yeah um oh my gosh the frustration but that's why i say like the one of the keys is getting white people to getting getting white people there yeah and that has to be the business of white people we can't expect people of color to come and educate us on our privilege right we have to do that work um and not re-traumatize people by expecting them to tell us their story over and over again right like, that's not appropriate we need to do this yeah no, it, it's true. I mean, and it is something that's difficult to get people to do. I, you can't get some people to care about the people standing right next to them. So getting them to care about somebody that's something abstract is even harder. I mean, and that is the work of, I think, spiritual traditions and religions and, and Christianity, especially. I mean, you know, you have a redeemer that goes to the broken, the outcast. Uh, so it seems like it's right at the heart of the message. So I was very... I guess surprised to see it become so convoluted and raged against um, within certain Christian circles during that. That really surprised me. A redeemer who was not white, by the way. <laughs> right. That, that a seems... redeemer who was not a white man. Yeah, that seems to get lost. That, that's been lost, right? I mean, it's hard to. Uh, I know. Yeah, well, it's just the symbols. I have this painting in my living room called the pearl of great price and it was painted by a japanese artist and he it's christ but it's uh when people walk in my home and they look at it they're like oh i love this and i'm like well who do you who do you think that is i go was is it buddha and i'm like no it's it's jesus and they're like that's not jesus and i'm like well what his mission was in painting this is he he's he said you know the roman empire influenced all the art that initially comes out of you know the religion of the land. He said, I, I've tried to reimagine what ha- what would have happened had Christianity first taken root in Japan. Mm-hmm. And what would the art look like coming out of that? And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. piece. So you see in this imagery, it's a little bit, there's hints of uh, the Bodhisattva idea, but it's definitely Jesus because there's the wounds are there and I don't know. There's other symbols in it, but he pulled them all from Japanese culture. And it really confounds mm. folks when they look at it. I can tell they're like, I don't know about that. And I'm like, it's 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 a history lesson, yeah. you know? Yeah, the those in power are the ones who control the stories that are told and how they're told. And we aren't taught that very well in this country, that, that those in power have shaped our education systems They've shaped what we learn and what we don't learn. Here in Oklahoma, we're approaching the 100-year centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Wow. Yeah. I grew up in Oklahoma, attended Oklahoma public schools my whole life, never learned about it. Gosh, Shannon. Never. 
This I, this is so sad. I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm a huge sci-fi comic book guy. You know, love that kind of entertainment. And we were watching the HBO show The Watchmen when it came out. In that first episode, they're doing that whole thing. And I had read the comics when I was a kid. And so it's like got this alternate American history. My wife did not read those. So when it comes on and I'm going, oh, so they're doing like, this is literally what I said. I'm so ashamed of this. I said, oh, they're doing that. Like the comics, they're doing like an alternate American history thing. And that whole thing went down. And the more I watched it, I was on my phone and I just said, let me just look this up and see what where they're pulling this from. Mm. Holy cow. I said, this is not. I looked at my wife and said, this is actually real. Completely real. Like this actually Completely happened. And I real. blew my mind. Never heard of it. And those Completely erased. Made it to where it was erased yeah. for years. Um, and and that also pops in my mind with the images of Jesus. I had the opportunity to visit Vernon Chapel AME Church in the heart of the Greenwood District. It's the last remaining structure from that massacre. Really? Wow. People literally hid in the basement of that church to survive. And I had the opportunity to visit. It's still a functioning church, thriving congregation in their church. And you can read my blog post about this on our website because I had a holy experience because they had this beautiful portrait of Jesus, beautiful, as a black man, holy, shining black man. And it was clear that it was Jesus. And I sat my little white self down and stared at this picture And I think I had what you described as one of those hinge moments because I knew what was happening was important, that I needed to sit down and take it in, but reflection was going to come over multiple days. And it did in that, holy cow, what we have done with this white Christian Jesus is tell populations of people who are not white that they are not the embodiment of holy. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, you're sending a signal. Yeah. Holy wow. Because as I stared at that portrait, I felt left out. I felt like I wasn't included in that depiction. Oh, I see. Yeah. I felt like holiness doesn't look like me. Man, Shannon. Yeah. That is what we have done to people of color since we colonized this country. Wow. And it is one of the most significant reflections I have had in one of the most significant locations I could ever be in with regards to racism in America. That's really powerful. It really is. I mean, what you're saying there, that feeling, you're being honest. I mean, you sit in front of this yes. image and you say, oh, this doesn't reflect who I am. And right. then to really turn that around and go, wow, we've been signaling. It goes all the way back to your story of when you were a little girl. You know, yeah. I mean, it's the yeah. same type of thing. You're looking around and you don't see any indication that you can be this. And therefore, you, you kind of put it in your pocket. You shove it away. You know, and that's what, gosh, generations what on generations of, of black Americans are, are people of color all over the world. Yeah. Indigenous. Think yeah. about 
when the Europeans came and colonized the New World with their images of holiness and then converted the Native Americans to Christian. Converted's too nice of a word. It, it was really like you convert or you get killed. That's what was presented to the Native Americans. So don't don't hear me say converted willingly. Yeah. But they were shown this is holy and see how that looks like me and not you. That means I'm better than you because I look like the holy in this image that has been produced by God knows who in a position of power and authority. It's sick. Yeah. It's interesting. I I have this little medal that belonged to my great grandfather. Um, When I had, I guess, my initial awakening experience in my 20s, I was visiting with my grandmother one day and she pulled out a little box that was filled with some of my great grandfather's things. I didn't know he was Catholic. And one of the things was this little medal. Um, Later, I would learn it's the Sacred Heart medal, but it, it had all the details had been pretty much just rubbed off of it and I had found out that he had pinned it to his uniform in World War One, mm. So it had been through, you know, all these terrible things with him, but he'd always kept it pinned to his shirt collar. And I love that medal. I used to sit and meditate on it because until I knew it was Jesus, I had I, I didn't know really what I was looking at, but it had a figure and and you could see that its hands were out and there was something glowing from the middle, but the face had been completely rubbed off, you know, over the years, it was just this little aluminum coin. And I used to sit and I still have it. I mean, it's, it hangs over my bed. I mean, I I love it because I used to sit and meditate. It's like, this is the faceless one, you know, this is the, this is for all people in all, all forms comes to all for all, you know, and, and I guess that informed my view of Jesus. I didn't think of Jesus as a, I guess, a white man. I just, I don't know. I've, I've always used the word being, like I think of him as a, a human being and then a being in general. Mm-hmm. But uh, that story, I don't know. That's going to stick with me the way that you flip that around. What a powerful moment. It really it is. Was, yeah. It was huge. Um, so, yeah. Shannon, you... You've done a lot of things. I mean, when you were, I read some other things about you. I mean, you've, you started the table ministry, right? For food insecure. I mean, you've worked with suicide support groups, criminal justice reform. I mean, did all of that, was that all stuff you did after you got into ministry or was that stuff that just led up to ministry? Those things have been since ministry. Okay. Those have all those have all been since ministry. My my very first job out of undergrad was as a juvenile probation officer of all things. Yeah. Okay. And, I read that. Yeah, and I always tell people that job changed everything about me. Really. Um, I was a little twenty-two-year-old girl who lived in a bubble and never saw any hurt or pain in the world, and. And that job shook me out of that bubble pretty quick. And it was in that occupation that I knew what I needed to do was do what I could to, to change the world and make it better. I didn't know what that was going to look like, yeah. but I was going to spend my life doing it. You were shown brokenness. Yeah. Very. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's, that's, I was actually talking to that about this with my son the other day. I mean, I, 
I would say that I'm involved in a ministry of sorts. I mean, I don't have a church or a religion that I'm a part of, but I try to meet people and, and create a space for them to be heard and, and heal through being heard. You know, that's really a big part of it. And I, too, had seen brokenness in the lower places, the places in the shadows and the cracks. And, you know, and talking to my son about that, I said, you know, I I couldn't look back once I saw those things. uh you can't unsee that it, it 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 should change you you know and it should be permanent not that you are fixed like a stone but that and that's a hinge yeah i mean so, yeah it doesn't leave you it it does not leave you that was you know 15 years ago now and i still remember so vividly moments in that job that permanently shifted me yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we were talking in the last, my guest earlier, Father Jim Finley, uh, he, he had said something in a podcast recently that just really stuck with me. And he said, um, imagine that you're walking up on a hill, it's the evening and there's a man sitting up on the hill. You can't see his face. Um, and that man is Christ. And you have a pain in you that's so private. What Think about the most private thing that you never told anybody that, that hurts you the most, that your, your fear, whatever it may be, that you could never, ever actually say out loud to anyone. And then you go and sit by him, and he puts his ear to your mouth, and he just says, tell me. Mm. And he said, and then you tell him. And what does he say back to you? And he just stopped the reflection right there. And I was like, God, it was, I, I sat with that. And I was in my truck when I listened to it. I was just sitting in my driveway in this little imagination experiment. And I thought, man, how powerful that was that one that I couldn't see his face. You know, he wasn't formed in some way. Um, and that that was the, I don't know, the ability to just take my pain and look right at it. Like the thing that I, hide the most, you know, that mm. I carry the closest and, and I could whisper it to him. And what did he say back to me? I mean, I heard like, I, I literally heard something back, like in my heart, it was so mm. powerful. And I thought, man, that's the Christ I want to be in this world. Like you with those kids and all these different things that you've done. I mean, you get to put your ear forward and say, it's okay. Yes. Or your eyes or your heart or whatever. And say, I'm looking, someone's looking at you. Someone yes. sees you. Yes. That's everything. That is literally everything. That, my friend, is the good news. Hmm. It is. I agree. This has been really wonderful. I'm I agree. Yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I, uh, I'm thrilled to keep following you and, and seeing whatever comes next. I mean, I just know just from talking to you and all the things that you have put out there, the information that you put out there that y'all will continue to do good things. And hopefully with a, I mean, not to bring politics back into it, but I mean, with a change in administration, I know there'll be new challenges. There always are, you know, human beings are always in some kind of need, but I, I do hope that the runway will be a lot uh, wider and smoother perhaps for people working for social justice well from your mouth to god's ears <laughs> let's hope and pray <laughs> I'm happy. I know I'm hey there good news listener i hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as i've enjoyed producing it 
Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seeded by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So look, at the end of the show, um, I do something called Fishing for Goodies. And so I'll show you this uh, fishbowl right here that's got 400 questions in it. Uh, I just draw three questions out randomly. And so I don't know what they are. I have some of these questions I wrote, but some of them have been put in here over the years by different guests and listeners. (laughs) And then we'll just see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So let's see. Question one, question two. Let's go deep dive here for question three. Okay. All right. Question three. uh, Oh, wow. What a simple question. Can, Can people change? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Fully believe Absolutely. that. You don't think anybody's yep. just hard boiled and the die is cast. No one is a stone. Grace, right? That's, that's grace. Yeah. Love it. That was easy. That was easy. I mean, and that, hey, I mean, Christianity is and Christ is all about transform is transformation, right. right? You know, that's I mean, right. rebirth. That's what we ought to be. Uh, yeah. Good answer. Okay, this is a little different. If you could pick up a skill instantly, what would it be? Ooh, okay. Gut reaction, first instinct, singing well. Oh. <laughs> um, here's why. I get so lost in music. Mm-hmm. It is holy, it is entertaining, it is relaxing, it is stunning. It is all of these things that just can shift a mood, change an atmosphere, change everything. If I could offer that to the world, I feel like that would be such an such a gift to have. Yeah. But I don't have that gift. You're not a singer. <laughs> I don't possess that gift. Do you play any no. instruments or anything? You know, I was in the high school band and okay. I played percussion. Um, so I have rhythm. Yeah. But but I I cannot sing. My brother can beautifully. He he got that gift and and man, he he's a beautiful singer, but but I am not. And you know, I wish I had a deeper answer to that question, but that was just what popped into my head. First, no, so. that's a good answer. I can see that because I know when I'm listening to somebody who can sing, I mean, they'll bring you to tears. Ah. You know, like really move your spirit. I, I had a friend, we were at a many years ago, it was an advertising awards uh, event that I had put together. And I had asked a friend if she could play the piano and sing. And she so she wrote a song. I mean, I knew she could sing and could write but i don't i'm being honest i never really like sat and appreciated it so i'm standing there on the floor with this microphone you know waiting on the next award to come up and then she's going to do her song and then we're going to go back to the awards i was bawling my eyes out in front of everybody i was like oh my gosh 
she's like an angel like mm-hmm. she wrote this song she's playing the piano and she's just singing so gloriously and it moved my heart i mean i was just i don't know she wasn't singing about anything particularly uh moving it was just something about it, watching that come out of another human being that just yes it's an incredible gift oh. oh my god yes the way you just described it is yes yes that gift is incredible well maybe someday you'll just pick pick it up it'll be like a bam you know (laughs) sure sure i'll let you know don't don't hold your breath well you'll start posting singing videos you know yeah i like to i like to sing i mean i'm not a singer but i do like to sing but i mostly just sing around the house makes up silly little songs you know for the kids and stuff so (laughs) i love this question right here so i'm curious what you're gonna say what mistake do you keep making over and over again? <laughs> yeah. All right. Deep um, cut. I know. There are so many things that I could say because there are so many mistakes. You know, I'm human. Yeah. So there's so many to choose from, but... um I'm not going to go personal life on this one, which I could do. Oh yeah, we could all like get like get deep down, like oh. Yeah, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. Um, I make the terrible mistake of just time management. Oh, I got you. The worst. I am constantly overbooked, plate constantly overfilled running here to there like you know i told you i've got a meeting right before you bumping up right against your time yeah yeah (laughs) it's just um ah you know i understand that and as, as much as i try to like schedule myself out and make space for like writing or the the little behind the scenes stuff that has to get done to make everything happen i uh Hey, I get that. I can actually agree with you. Look, I I would say I even almost pride myself on time management because I have a small business and I mean, I have side projects and things like this. And I'm like, okay, I have to make time. You know, it's all production and scheduling. And so I, I have this real tidy way of doing that. But the other day, I realized, well, I realized lately, I'm just, it seems like it's just, there's hiccups all the time. And I was watching, I don't know if you ever watched Coyote Peterson, the guy that lets animals bite him and sting him. What? It's like no. a YouTube channel. He goes out in the wild oh, no. and finds these crazy animals. He lets them sting him. But my son loves it. Uh, he was letting these things I'd never seen before bite him. They're called bloodfish. And they're like these giant leeches, right? Okay. And what they do is they swim up to the fish in the ocean or the sea or whatever and they bite onto their side. Well, these fish don't even realize these things are on there. And these things have like these little teeth. They bite them on the side and they basically just slowly but surely eat eat them while they're just living their little fish lives. That's what these fish, these bloodfish do. Uh-huh. And I, was, I know this is a craziest, gross segue, but I thought of time <laughs> management the other day. I was like, this is why I keep, this is my, my problem. I'm good at planning my stuff, but I never account for the blood worms or the blood fish <laughs> that are coming at me like in the middle of the day and going, oh, by the way, I'm just going to bite you in the side while you're trying to get your list accomplished. 
and I'm stealing your life force. And it's like I get six or seven of those a day and my time management goes out the window. That's a whole sermon right there. That is a whole sermon, the blood fish. <laughs> you need to look them up. Look up the blood. Look them up, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna because, man, that image right there. Mm. Next time I'm in a pulpit, it's gonna be about bloodfish. Oh, yeah. They'll I, take your time away. Like, I, and by the end of the day, I'm going, man, I'm so drained. I, I mean, I know I scheduled things out. What did I do wrong? Yeah. Well, it's because I had bloodfish all over me. I didn't yeah. even, I wasn't paying attention. Little, little tasks that just get yeah, or troubles or whatever that I just could have totally ignored got yep. get sidetracking me. You have to reset your password on some government website that you, you know, have to then keep track of and reset it 20 times to get oh, into yeah. it. And that's the stuff that my life is made of these days. Yeah, I think a lot of us are mired down in that, especially communications. I mean, yeah. you know, I could spend the whole morning just sending out communications or responding before ever getting to any kind of really actionable thing beyond that. So I get it. Well, uh, I have one one final question. It doesn't come out of the fishbowl, but I ask everybody this question. Um, did anything good happen today? Today was the inauguration of a new president and a stunning, powerful vice president who is a woman. I know, and right? Historic. A woman, but a woman of color. It is a fantastic day for this country. It's especially a fantastic day for little girls in this country who maybe did not think that they could be that. You know, today. you're right. This is a hinge mm -hmm. moment, right? For a it's lot a of kids. Moment. Gosh, a yes. Moment. So glad we talked about all that. You bringing that home that way at the end there just paints the whole conversation. There was a thread running through what we talked about. And I mean, it really goes back to what we see. And we need to see ourselves being represented. Yep. Not me. Yep. I see myself out there. I don't need it, but other people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, but you, <laughs> you have to help facilitate it. That's what people with privilege have to be doing. You have to be able to make sure it's happening and then get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Man, so what a, a role. You have a role. Yeah, we have to. And it, I, I always encourage people to use their communications for that. If you have skill and tools to communicate with, use them for good. I mean, use them to encourage people and to propagate positive change. You know, put signals out there. There's a lot of noise. I mean, so much static. And uh, put something strong and good out there. I mean, give people at least an option. Okay. Lord knows there's enough conspiracies and misinformation in the world. That's absolutely right. Shannon, I agree. thank you so, so much for your time. This has been wonderful. This top of my day. Great, great conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Reverend Shannon Fleck. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news slash donate, where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.